Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Agrita Dandrell, and you're listening to the Mindful of Everything podcast, which calls for revolutionary healing of self and community to outgrow neo individualistic cultures which work to disempower communities so that we can re envision together a safer, healthier, and equitable world. Today's episode is a Reflect episode as part of the ongoing Reflect series on deep nostalgia as medicine for hurting human identities and how nostalgia can help shape and reimagine the human being within the modern human world but also as integrated with the natural world as we begin to shift to mindsets of interconnectedness and stewardship which are reminiscent of ancient ways of being. Welcome back, everyone, to another Reflect episode. The last one, I am just checking now, was actually on Christmas Eve last year. And since then, we've gotten to soak in all the wisdom and all the thought-provoking information that has been gifted to us so kindly by our lovely guests. I think... There's nothing more heartwarming than connecting with people who you've just met, you know, whether they've asked to come on the podcast or whether I've actively searched around and found someone who seems as if they would align to the values of this space and explore areas of being, which we don't usually get to explore in our daily life, at least for me. So to be able to connect with people who are so aligned with what you believe in. But at the same time, it's your first or second time meeting them. That's such a magical experience. And I've only gotten this through this podcast. So first of all, thank you to everyone who has continued their support for Mindful of Everything. Also, I do want to apologize for not updating you all about the delay in this episode. I should have, of course, been released at the beginning of the month, but I wasn't able to do that because I was balancing so many different beginnings and endings. And within that, also an extended sort of period of mourning as well. So many different shifts, so many different changes at once, and my time management literally flew out the window. And so a week later from the time in which I was supposed to, or the day I was supposed to release this episode, I realized I hadn't even gotten to the point of finishing my notes, let alone recording and editing and releasing it. We're finally here, so thank you for bearing with me, and thank you again for being on this journey. I have genuinely been so excited to record this particular episode, but also just any Reflect episodes, because it's great to obviously bring in different people from different areas and different standpoints in life to this space to get to know a bit more about how they think about the world and what sort of changes they want to see, what sort of active work they're doing within that space that they're in. But at the same time, you do need that space and that time to reflect on everything that you've absorbed you know, where you align with it, are there certain things that you agree or disagree with, certain things that perhaps you'd like to integrate within your own life. And that is what the Reflect episodes give me. And hopefully they give that to you as well. It's just this time for you and me to sit down and have these honest, open conversations with each other and allow these conversations to freely flow and meander in different directions and I enjoy holding them and I really hope that you enjoy engaging with them. So I know it's not even New Year's, but a resolution for this podcast or for this space would definitely be to have more of these Reflect episodes as much as possible because I really enjoy making them. And it really just allows us to explore different things around us, inside of us, at our own pace and with a sense of agency as well. This particular episode, actually, I wanted to record before the hiatus, but at that time I wasn't able to do so. And I feel like now I have the capacity to go into this universe of nostalgia, the universe that, I, that I'm living in and all the different worlds that make up who I am are in. 
I think it's a difficult time to have this conversation around nostalgia. But I also think that this is a perfect time to unpack certain things I've been thinking about for the course of a few months or even just during the pandemic and the lockdown. And I guess it also extends way back to my childhood, but also lifetimes before this one. But before we dive right in to this conversation and just to ease ourselves into it, let's take a few deep breaths together. If you're able to gently close your eyes Feel the energy around you, within you, as your body begins to relax. Your mind slows down to focusing on this moment. Feel the ground beneath your feet, energy in the room. And realize that this is your time to slow down and to focus on yourself. I know that there's so much that you're probably thinking about going through, anticipating, anxious about. But let these few minutes at least be a time for you to just focus on your body, on your mind and on your breathing. We're going to take five deep breaths together. Take a deep breath in. And a deep breath out. Take a deep breath in. And a deep breath out. Take a deep breath in. And a deep breath out. Take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. Deep breath in and a deep breath out. When you feel ready, Gently open your eyes. I hope that was grounding for you and brought some form of calmness to this moment and this space. Thank you for doing the breathing practice with me. This episode, just to give you some background, has been playing at the back of my mind for so long. Deep nostalgia or nostalgia in general is something that I have emphasized already in this space on, you know, on, on the website, social media, but this is the first time where I'm actually addressing it, what it means to me and how deep nostalgia can really be medicinal for fractured modern human identities. There's so many different layers nostalgia you know I mentioned that it's essentially it's like a universe that I live within you know the different worlds that make up who I am are within so let's start this episode off by reading this lovely quote by Gabriel Garcia Marquez on nostalgia we grow up with dreams in our eyes and songs on our lips and we discover that life is not what we thought it would be and then we discover nostalgia This quote essentially summarizes the entire episode, but for me, I think 2020 was the beginning of this particular nostalgia journey 
that Gabriel has so beautifully described here. But I also think this quote and how we perceive nostalgia today is symbolic of a larger cultural shift and how we perceive the human ability and capacity to dream, but to also reimagine realities. Because as I was trying to find a quote to start the episode off for nostalgia, I had to pass through quite negative narratives for nostalgia, which were reducing it to a social pathology. And it really did pull me back to a time where I myself was convinced that yearning for our past, first of all, was just wrong. And I always had this drive to just push forward to the future. And I'm sure we've all at one point grown up with this narrative. You know, where our nostalgic experiences, they've been invalidated, especially if you're a deeply nostalgic person like myself. The origins of nostalgia, in fact, were based on this ideology that nostalgia is a social pathology. It's a psychological disorder. Johannes Hofer, who is a Swiss medical student, he was the one who first termed nostalgia in the 1680s. He had a dissertation and his project was essentially looking at behavioural symptoms of Swiss soldiers who had been fighting on behalf of various European rulers in foreign lands. And so he coined this term from combining the Greek words nostos, which is homecoming, and algos, which is pain. I probably have mispronounced that. I am sorry for that. And so he concluded that nostalgia, quote unquote, is a cerebral disease of essentially demonic cause. And he based that off symptoms he found to be common from those suffering nostalgia, so the Swiss soldiers, such as palpitations, anxiety, insomnia, and a general obsessive longing for home, homesickness. And this conceptualization of nostalgia as a medical or neurological disease, it persisted throughout the 18th to the 19th century. And by the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century, it then shifted to a psychiatric disorder or a form of melancholia. By the mid-20th century, nostalgia was branded as an immigrant psychosis, um, which arises from a subconscious sort of yearning of wanting to return to your homeland. But by the end of the 20th century, we began to see a much more positive association being made for nostalgia, like childhood, good old times, you know, the warm memories, So we saw this cultural shift from our understanding of nostalgia being about homesickness to being a yearning for aspects of one's past. So events, people, smells, music, certain visuals that isn't limited to a person's homeland or any other sort of factors like age, ethnicity, or people being from a certain group like soldiers. It's an actual universal experience. But I still feel that the remnants of this previous conditioning around nostalgia and clinging on to aspects of your past still remain. I still feel like nostalgia is still seen as a guilty pleasure. You know, it's something that you indulge in for a few minutes or hours of a day or a week just so you can escape the reality you're in right now. And then once you're done with that indulgence, you just push it to a side and continue on living in the present, working towards the future. So no matter how much we can try to sugarcoat our actual perception of nostalgia, overall it's still seen as something as a distraction from the real world, an idealistic sort of um, approach to life rather than realistic. And I think the same goes with inner child work or even the decolonization movement, you know, whether it's connecting to your inner child or your ancestors by embodying certain aspects of those pasts and practicing rituals from these pasts, people still generally see that as okay to do as, you know, in your free time or as a hobby, but there's no way that you can integrate that with your current life because idealisms and imaginations, they don't work in reality, they don't work in real life. It's a narrative that I've grown up with and I still see around me. You know, very few of us want to explore what nostalgia 
really is and what nostalgia can actually do for us, apart from just distracting us from the day-to-day, from the present moment, or apart from just reducing nostalgia to a tool that can help us overcome just longing so that we can better accept what we have right now, what we are right now, who we are right now, rather than reimagine the reality that we are living right now. And to be very honest with you, that was a narrative that I was comfortable with. I agreed with it. I personally found it very uncomfortable to recall my past um, because of unresolved sort of traumas and painful aspects of that past would always glare back at me whenever I revisited that past through nostalgia. Until the pandemic suddenly came along and it really just brought along a wave of nostalgia that is genuinely here to stay. And I don't want it to go ever. I don't think it will. And that's why I'm recording this podcast episode today. I find it difficult to mention that aspect of the pandemic. Um, It really does highlight my privileges. When I say this as well, that amongst all the pain and difficulties that the pandemic has caused and it continues to cause, and I've dealt with some of them myself, the pandemic for me really did, and I'm sure for many other people, provide opportunities to slow down, to rest, to really just reevaluate, and to reimagine and recall parts of ourselves that perhaps we felt we didn't have the capacity to embrace you know, parts of our truth that speak of who we really are. And also just a human need to just cling on to our roots, which give us that sense of belonging and identity. And I think that probably is the lifeblood of all humans. You know, without both of these, without a sense of belonging and identity, we are just uprooted from the system. And by the system, I mean the system of the earth, our ecosystems, um, this web of interrelatedness, we are uprooted from that and disconnected from that. So in terms of nostalgia for me and from my standpoint, there are two mainstreams and all other subcategories essentially flow out of these. The first stream is personal nostalgia. It's the nostalgia that we most commonly refer to. You know, that that nostalgia which revives lived past experiences of the body. So the tangible, those very visual memories that the brain can physically recall because we have lived them. So that usually is childhood for adults or even teenagers, but it can be early childhood for children as well. Something that you perhaps done as a five-year-old and you still remember that as eight-year-old and you feel that nostalgia for that time, even though it's only been three years. Essentially, personal nostalgia is all about longing for an era that has now passed or a period in the past that actually held a lot of happiness and contentment that you are longing for, even though at that time you may not have felt that happiness and that contentment. But now, with the benefit of hindsight, you can see how much happier perhaps you were before than now. If we were to specifically talk about childhood nostalgia, as someone born in 1999, so November of 99, which was literally just two months away from a millennial change, so many cultures, people, communities actually didn't believe that we would survive until the 2000s. So. I was only two months old when the millennial change happened, yet I physically experienced that change of time, even though, of course, my mind cannot recall what it was like as a two-month-old going into the 2000s. But the world knew that everything would revolutionise from then on, and that is exactly what has happened. You know, with the arrival of Gen Z from the late 90s to now Gen Alpha, the technological advances that we are seeing, they have skyrocketed since the 2000s and they have really shaped our realities in ways that would be unimaginable for our ancestors. You know, I'm saying ancestors, but even our parents, so the parents of Generation Z or our grandparents. So human beings alive right now 
would have thought this type of technological advancement would be impossible. It's just unimaginable. You wouldn't imagine the level of integration of technology in our lives now. I emphasize on technology because I think, and I think many people agree, it has been the ultimate catalyst for extreme changes in the way modern societies function. You know, specifically for Gen Z, since I'm part of the generation, so I feel like I can talk about our experiences. We have first handedly experienced this mechanization of the human being in context of human codependency with technology. You know, without our electronics and machines, and by machines, I mean sort of modern machines we're seeing now, we are unable to function in the world that we have created, or at least the world that has been created by the managers of the systems which work to control us. And and I think tech is commonly used as a tool of suppression. Again, talking about Gen Z, you know, as children, we were just about getting used to a culture which limited contact with technology, you know, the tech world was still kind of separate from the human world. In that sense, there were some overlaps, but it wasn't that bad. As children, we got to, or we were just about getting used to embodied play, for example, um, social interaction. But suddenly we have been hit collectively by this wave of technology, and it's really just engulfed all of us and left us in limbo right, of nostalgia for a simpler but more socially connected past. Yet we're in this new world of technological codependency. I know it's not just a Gen Z thing, it's all generations before Generation Alpha, they have been affected by this, especially the older generation. You know, they had no accessible internet or mobile phones um, growing up and even in adulthood. And it's funny because Last week, I was actually having a very similar conversation with my mum around this issue of the parents of Generation Z essentially suffering from this fatigue because throughout their adulthood, maybe into their 30s, they didn't live a world where technology was so integrated in their life. And now that they are reaching their, well, in their 40s, 50s or 60s, they're being forced to follow this culture of overworking and in, and basically interacting so much with technology that they had never imagined would happen. And it's just feeling like too much. And what's sad is that a lot of people, you know, in their 50s, or in the generation of our parents, um, they're passing away. And I totally understand why my mom totally gets it as well. Because being this stressed as you're getting older is lethal. And you can imagine how Gen Z, who have become adults, you know, we're just about getting used to the adult life. We are at the forefront of it all. We are seeing how worse it is getting and how worse it will get in terms of the humanity being stripped away from humans and the mechanization of the human being, as I mentioned before. Generation Alpha at least in this lifetime, they haven't even seen a reality that isn't technology dominated, right? So they cannot miss a time that they haven't experienced. The baby boomer generation and generations previous to them, they have lived that reality where the human technology interface was either non-existent or it was too weak for technology to be integrated into their lives. The generations between these have really been thrown into this hyper-mechanized reality headfirst. But I think, at least when I've, you know, talked to millennials about this or just hear how they interact with technology, and it's something that I hear from my parents as well, is that generations before Gen Z have gotten to live a significant portion of their lives in a reality that was totally oblivious to cyberculture domination or dominion. So it's so much easier for them to detach themselves from that tech world. For example, if you talk about social anxiety, a lot of our parents won't understand what using technology to relieve social anxiety can look like or can feel like, or using technology as fillers for awkward silences. That's a big thing in our generation. Or 
they aren't as affected by body image or social media pressures because they don't occupy those online spaces as much as we do or they don't take it as seriously as we do. Because a large portion of their adulthood was spent without this cyberspace. Gen Z or even millennials born in the 90s, they got a taste of that reality but were immediately put at the forefront of this cultural shift towards this tech-based world. And that taste, that taste of that sweet reality, it still lingers on the tongue. You know, that longing is still within us, but that reality now seems too far out of reach because, as I mentioned before, and as we all know, we aren't going to be detracting in this technological advancement journey. We're not going to detract from that our realities are only going to keep getting more technologically dense. You know, when I was actually writing some of the notes and some of the thoughts, you know, that were popping up as I was thinking about this episode, I didn't realise how tech-based this section of nostalgia, just personal nostalgia would be. But there's a reason why I focused on technology on this stream of nostalgia so much. And I'll tell you why. The The overarching purpose of modern technology is to reduce the number of steps needed to complete a task and for platforms to be as user-friendly as possible. It's all about decluttering the online space, you know, clearing up space for users whilst programs essentially work silently in the background. So it's all about ease and reducing how much users need to think for themselves about how the piece of technology that they're using is actually programmed so that we can continue on with our lives while the tech continues on with dealing with processes that are closely linked to our lives. Just kind of focusing on the decluttering and clearing up aspect of it, I think this minimalistic, really oversimplified and homogenized outlook on functionality and workflows has trickled down into society and the way we function as people, our cultures and essentially our human being. You know, you can see how minimalism has taken over and has now become the foundation of our dominant culture, where we have been conditioned to believe that oversimplification and excessive decluttering is better. And you can see this in so many different parts of our life. You know, our fashion styles, for example, have moved to more neutral tones, simple designs. Clothes tend to have just one colour. Compare that to the Y2K or the vintage pieces that so many people are now trying to find and obviously wear, including me, I'm one of those people. You know, those pieces were so much more elaborate you know, they were colourful, they had intricate designs, they were very expressive, they were unique and also they were messy. You can of course see that with our technology as well. We have moved to more minimalistic designs, you know, electronics are more sleek, they're more uniform in terms of their layout, there's a restricted choice in colours or anything other than space grey or black is seen as tacky, cheap, less modern. Compare that to designs before for our technology. They were much bigger. There were more colours to choose from. There was actually more choice to personalise your tech so that it would suit the user's style more rather than us adapt to the style of tech companies. And also our spaces. They have been greatly impacted with minimalistic design, you know, uniformity. There's an underlying elitism as well. For example, clinical or corporate looks are often favoured over colourful, maximalist designs. There's also a sense of safety that many people, including myself, until I actually had to sit down and think about this, would feel in places that look more elegant or more posh. You know, that, that gives us a sense of security that is well known as well established. Also, if a space is bigger, and is decluttered so you can see more of it. If the space has more white or neutral tones, it tends to feel like, okay, you can trust the service, you know, you can trust that space because it has that elegant, that decluttered, minimalistic look. And 
this argument of design that I happen to just think of, it's not just limited to physical spaces, it's also online spaces. Websites that follow that minimalistic, sleek look are often seen as more reliable, more secure compared to other websites that don't follow that template. Essentially, spaces that have their own personality, that are perhaps more chaotic in design. Essentially, those places that don't follow our current trend of this unachievable perfection. And that's why I feel like technology is more a tool for these systems to keep us under control. It's just another form of systemic restriction of the human imagination. It's mostly used in that way, at least. You know, for example, in the early 2000s and before that, we would embrace more chaos and more non-linearity in, in the ways we would be for ourselves, but for our communities. So there was more creative freedom in that sense. And again, this is not to sugarcoat or to romanticize past that held so much pain, you know, the shadows of that time. Shadow work is what we got to learn with Andrew Lang. So if you haven't listened to the episode, I really recommend that you do. But since in this conversation, we are centering nostalgia, it is right to say that we did have more opportunities to be expressive, to be creative and to really emulate Earth's own maximal design, you know, which is full of mess, it's full of colour, diversity, fluidity. It's a celebration of life as abundant and full and not empty and void that you need to declutter, you need to clear out. That's not what we see in Earth and that's not what we were seeing 10 or more years ago. And again, this is really not to shame personal choice. A lot of people prefer the minimalistic lifestyle. You know, they like those muted, turned down styles. And that is completely fine. That is completely normal. But for those of us who absolutely loved the vibrance of the early 2000s or the 90s or even before that, our nostalgia runs too deeply within ourselves. And it's difficult for us to be content with the world today, when just 20 years ago, or slightly less than that, we used to embrace something completely different, something that we now see as tacky and not modern enough. And so for people like me, you know, those deep nostalgics, when we are confronted with that reality that we miss so much, you know, for example, if you find um, a vintage piece of clothing that we've always wanted to wear as children or we listen to the music and the songs of the time that sense of longing just keeps deepening and it does sound now thinking about it a lot like the psychological disorders that coinism nostalgia were talking about but deep nostalgics know that this is not about obsession of the time that has gone nostalgia can really help us to reimagine what reality can look like if our pasts were actually merged with our present, or at least our present shaped by the positive aspects of our pasts. And this now leads me on to the stream of nostalgia that really urged me to create this episode today. What I've been wanting to focus on is the part of our pasts that we haven't lived in this lifetime, or from my standpoint as a Hindu, but also from the lens of evolution or genetics we haven't lived in this lifetime yet we have lived sounds confusing but i hope i can slowly break it down for you go for it this type of nostalgia or this stream is known as or labeled as historical nostalgia and i personally find it surprising how we don't touch upon historical nostalgia as much as we do personal because a lot of past nostalgia research has been done around historical nostalgia. For example, Christine Bacho, who has done a lot of research in nostalgia. So if you were to search up academic research done in nostalgia, Christine will be the first to pop up. And she was speaking on the Speaking of Psychology podcast. And she mentioned how when she first started building an inventory in the mid-1990s of empirical evidence for nostalgia, it was actually historical nostalgia. So she was looking at nostalgia for a particular history, so a particular period of time, 
or just nostalgia for how society has moved across in the years. And she mentioned that a lot of the time, emotional attachment for longing of a time that predated a birth of a person popped up. And I think that really contrasts the emphasis that we have these days on personal nostalgia. You know, it's much more about lived experiences of an individual or a community and realities. I actually came across the term historical nostalgia when watching one of Slow Factory's open education series. I think that happened last year. Yasmi Majali, who is talking about fashion and cultural heritage, she was talking about feeling nostalgic for the Palestine that her grandma or her grandparents have experienced, one that she wasn't alive for, the Palestine before the conflict. I think that is such a beautiful experience, is one that I've experienced for myself, but within the context of Palestine, it's also a very painful one. Or just any, any people living through wars and conflict-stricken regions. But I think the passing on of nostalgia between generations just shows us how complex and how layered nostalgia is. Because having a longing for a time you've experienced, you know, experiences that you have embodied, makes sense. Because you've lived those in this lifetime. Then how is it that you can long for a time you haven't lived through in this body, through your own standpoint? And I think that's where the first sort of arguments come in against historical nostalgia. You know, longing for a reality in the past that was better than the one we are experiencing today probably didn't exist because we ourselves were not present for that time. So our standpoint and what we perceive to be a better reality or a reality that's more suited to us also didn't exist. You know, people would argue that if you view a reality that you haven't experienced as better, those aspects of the past are the parts of that past that have only been preserved by past generations so that we can feel as if the past was better. You know, for example, the music or the fashion or even anecdotes of elders, you know, our time was better. What is actually happening is that we are living the nostalgia or the experiences of people who are nostalgic. So it's like a secondhand or pre-loved nostalgia that we're experiencing. We haven't experienced those experiences to be actually feeling nostalgia, but we're feeling that nostalgia through those who have experienced that reality. And this links back to Yasmin's talk, which I didn't get to finish, but a part that did strike me was that cultural heritage is actually a selective process of memory and oblivion, which is, literally um, quoting this, characterised by human societies as we constantly are choosing what is worthy enough to be preserved for future generations and what isn't. And this can be for both cultural and political reasons. So then this leads on to the question of, is nostalgia just a romanticised version of a reality? that is based on the parts of our cultural heritage that we have selectively chosen to preserve. So are we strategically choosing to leave behind the shadows, the pains, the dark parts, unwanted parts of our past, so that we can cling on to the pleasant and pleasurable memories, which then feel so much better than the reality we're experiencing now? And is it right that we omit parts of our past so that we can indulge in the pleasant parts of our memory. I feel like the context of Yasmin's talk and what I'm talking about today in terms of nostalgia broadly is quite different. So Yasmin was specifically talking about the memory side of Palestinians and Palestinian nostalgia or Palestinian memory for classical Palestine by Israel. But I think these questions of romanticization of the past is still pertinent to this discussion and well beyond. But I personally think that nostalgia has never been about the omission of pain. And it's never been about the romanticization of a past that either you have experienced or haven't experienced in this lifetime. In fact, I believe that nostalgia really opens doors for opportunities to explore the many different worlds that make up an individual. You know, what I mentioned at the beginning, I feel like nostalgia is like this universe that I'm living in and 
the different worlds that make up who I am are within that universe. And so if nostalgia is allowing us to explore these different worlds that make up who we are, that will also include past worlds, worlds that predate our birth. And we have freedom to roam around in those worlds as we please, you know, as we move through our life journeys, whatever serves our needs at different points of that journey, different stages. And whilst we move through these worlds and move through the pains and joys and other emotions of these worlds, we then build our capacity to look back at things like personal and generational traumas and then be able to pull out the beautiful parts of the past we perhaps felt we were we have outgrown or they were too painful to recall previously. Nostalgia for me really opens that door for inner child work. It opens that door for generational trauma work. And I think it really provides the foundation for any healing work because it allows you to embrace parts of your truths that you didn't have the capacity to embrace before. And for me, there's nothing more powerful than that when it comes to trauma and healing work. Being able to look back at your past and realize that it wasn't all dark and painful. There were so many happy moments. This episode is actually supposed to be released, as I mentioned before, the podcast hiatus. But when I was thinking to release it, it coincided with the passing of one of my favorite childhood singers, known as KK, who's, who's an Indian singer, Krishna Kumar Granath. And um, he passed on the 31st of May. It really felt as if my entire childhood world came crashing down. And I felt way too heavy way too lost to bring myself to record this episode then for a very very long time I had convinced myself uh, to believe that any part of my childhood was happy whenever I look back I could only see the pain and so I totally agreed with you know nostalgia just just being a distraction just being another way to surface certain memories that you didn't want to remember because if you remember the happy parts you will naturally remember the parts that you didn't want to remember or that weren't as happy. Come 2020 and lockdown gave me that time to reminisce and to reconnect with my inner child and the primary way I'd done that was listening again to Indian music that I grew up with, you know the music that helped me stay close to my roots as I immigrated at the age of five and a half to the UK and I continued to listen to that music um, until I became a teenager and you know how teenagers are they they explore different areas of life and that's I think that's the beauty of teenagehood but naturally I, I started distancing myself from that music that reminded me of that time that I didn't want to remember but as lockdown came about and a lot of people actually would would um, resonate with this people were starting to look back at their past and realize how beautiful they were pre-pandemic whether it was literally like 2019 so a year before or it was years before and so when I began to revisit old songs and I started listening to KK songs again it just made me realize how distant I had gotten from my inner child and so whenever I would be listening to you know my Bollywood playlist and his song would pop up when I had the songs on shuffle I would feel so excited as if my inner child was was literally jumping inside of me and I felt so proud that I was able to build that capacity you know to feel nostalgic of a past like I said that wasn't all dark it wasn't all heavy so when KK passed, it felt as if a portion of my childhood that I had just revived two years ago had died again. And so now when I hear his voice and I'm listening to songs, instead of feeling ecstatic, I feel that heaviness again and that pain again. And um, what was even more heart-wrenching actually was that just before he died, he was performing on a, in a concert and... Actually, lockdown also gave him an opportunity to come back and to sing all those songs that Gen Z or millennials have felt so nostalgic for. So him leaving really, really shocked all of his fans. 
And literally, whenever I do listen to his songs, tears still come to my eyes. But there's this underlying gratitude for his voice to help me reconnect to my inner child. Gratitude for music in general and my Indian heritage is is literally this flame that will never go out no matter how dark, no matter how cold and gloomy my surroundings might, might feel. That flame, it won't go out. That's just the beauty of nostalgia. You know, it allows you to hold both the pain and the joy together and sit with both because nothing is either or in this complex world, you know. Nothing is binary, nothing is black and white. And I know I've said pain and joy as two sort of um, emotions because we usually associate these emotions with nostalgia, but there's so many different more feelings and emotions, so much more to unpack and to process. And I guess with my example and... Whoever feels nostalgic would know that nostalgia, it changes with time as well. There are many facets of longing and they usually align with your being, but your being also changes with time. You know, it's reshaped by time, but also by myriad factors linked to our environments. But just kind of staying in the present and holding the emotions present within my current standing For me, I have personally been feeling a deep longing for the ways that we used to live in more creative and more slow sorts of ways through both the personal and the historical nostalgia streams. And like I said, it's easier to recall past ways of being that I have lived in this body. You know, some I've already described, but currently for me, it has been play. So the non-strategic, unstructured, non-judgmental play. Very reminiscent of childhood and how children are allowed to play. And I actually realised how much I miss play, like this form of play, um, on Friday, which was my last day at an internship. I was working in a very small team where I felt so welcome And I felt that I could wear my truths with so much pride to the point that I felt so excited sharing my truths. It was a great space to be in, really great. And on the final day, we were playing a sort of cat Pictionary. So the cats were incorporated into Pictionary where you draw um, something on a card that you randomly choose and everybody has to guess. And then you go around seeing who gets the most amount of points. And that just really pulled me back to parts of my past where I have been allowed or given the opportunity to play in such a way where there's no judgment involved, no requirement of a certain skill set. Everyone is equal. Everyone is having fun. You know, I've gotten to play like that, not just in school, but also during my undergraduate studies. And for the past year, since I've been out of education, I haven't had that. So experiencing that again has just made me realise how important that sort of play is for me. Ever since Friday, I've been feeling super nostalgic for those times. And another layer to it, which maybe I'll talk about in another episode, was also the interplay of masculine and feminine energies. I think that also just dips into the sort of non-judgmental side of things, you know, that equal play. Nobody expects you to have expertise in, in whatever sort of skills the play requires or the game requires. But at the same time, feeling really excited to feel the synergies. And of course, this is this is not really about historical nostalgia, but it was just something that I ended up thinking about as I was kind of unpacking historical nostalgia for myself, was that at least from the longing of that I have of a slower, more creative way that we have lived before, whether it's a past that I've experienced or a past that I haven't. The parts of my past that I feel nostalgic for very much align with the parts of the history I feel nostalgic for. In fact, it's nearly the same. So it naturally makes me feel as if I've already lived those realities I long for, that I wasn't alive for. Because what I miss from my childhood, or even just the pre-pandemic world, is what I miss from those worlds I didn't get to live in. 
as myself, as a greeter. And that just made me realise that my lived experiences, they have been shared before, you know, by generations before me and by my ancestors. So, at least from how I view things, these memories have not only been held in our material bodies, but also in our ancestral bodies and also spiritual bodies if you are a spiritual person. And at times of change, nostalgia brings forward these memories to us, which we sense as a deep longing for perhaps our origins or our roots, places where we feel more grounded, places that we feel a sense of belonging for. And this concept of passing down, not exactly memories, but knowledge or lessons learned from the past, it is supported by science. If you see it from the lens of evolution, you know, evolution is all about passing down successful survival tactics to future generations. And it is all about genetically reshaping species so that they can adapt or better adapt to their changing environments. So our genome and our bodies, they already hold so much wisdom from the past, which has been essential to creating the modern human, if we were to just focus on the human species. But we see that in any other species who have, of course, evolved over time. But in terms of our direct ancestry, we also have, for example, passing down of memories at the prenatal state from mother to child. This is especially important for trauma work, where we've seen that mothers who have suffered from traumas or they have had childhood traumas that end up shaping their child's brain even before they're born. So that's a direct impact of memories. So whether it's living through your mother's traumas as you developed inside of her womb or holding knowledge of adaptation and ways to survive and ways to live, all of our experiences are shared. All of our experiences have been lived before and most importantly, we have lived them before. Through our ancestors, through our parents, through each other, community, within species. It also dips into shared experiences as other species or subspecies of human. Or of course, as I mentioned, more recent ancestry. Seeing it from a spiritual lens, so specifically from Hinduism, the idea of reincarnation, the cycle of reincarnation, and that your past lifetimes are not, have not been limited to humanity, is gone into other species as well, really just embodies this idea of ancestral bodies holding memories um, of the past. This philosophy of reincarnation, it's very similar to the evolution argument, where we have originated from microorganisms and progressed onto becoming modern humans we are today. And so from that spiritual lens or from that Hinduism lens, we hold that capacity to withhold lessons from the past, you know, that ancestral wisdom that isn't restricted to our human species, to our human ancestry, and that we are part of this big family, you know, we're part of this big web of interrelatedness. So I haven't always just been a human. I've perhaps been a tree or a bee or a fish or a bird, a microbe, grass, and more relating to humans, a human from a different, a human from a different culture and cultural standpoint entirely. So it's really just about emphasizing on relationality between and within species and that we are really no different from each other because we share everything. So that's just my personal take on the cycle of reincarnation. But I think what really gave rise to the historical nostalgia within me was the rise of the indigenous movement across the world, in particular its prominence on social media, because that's a space that I tend to occupy quite a lot. So I really credit the indigenous movement and indigenous communities, especially those who have occupied online spaces so that they can raise that awareness, reminding me that we did used to live much more simple, slow, you know, creative, non-structural lives before all of this intensification that we really did not need, our bodies, our communities, 
our land, the more the human world just really didn't need. But I think the most important thing about indigenous communities and reconnecting to their way of being as a human before this tech dominion was the fact, or is the fact that indigenous communities emulate the maximalism, the complexity, their dynamism, essentially the interconnectedness of Earth. And they do that through anti-colonial, non-hierarchical, egalitarian, embodied practices, so that the human world lives in harmony, first of all, with nature, but also lives within nature, within that more than human world. The human world is integrated in nature because we are nature and nature is us. So is this real celebration of life, you know, our interrelatedness that indigenous communities are able to integrate in their lives and the way they function as systems within the systems of the earth that really just brought out that historical nostalgia, that deep nostalgia of reconnecting or even just living again the ways that our ancestors would live, but also how indigenous communities live within these systems of oppression. And these are the sort of feelings that people are resonating with. You get to see that on social media, you get to see that in person. People understand why the indigenous movement has gone so big, why it resonates with so many of us who live lifestyles so distant from that reality. But at the same time, you have an argument against this uprising, particularly around romanticizing indigenous practice. I remember in one of my lectures, we were talking about compassionate conservation. So essentially a westernized take on indigenous practices of conservation. And immediately, some of the international students, they realized the flaws of the concept. Essentially, it's a, it's a way to co-opt indigenous conservation practices. And so when one of the international students challenged the professor on it, especially because at that point we were focusing on the flaws of compassionate conservation and essentially supporting the human right to kill organisms that are, for example, invasive species, even though a lot of the time humans were the cause of that invasion. The professor mentioned how it's great that we are bringing in indigenous perspectives and indigenous ideologies, epistemologies around conservation and the role that humans play in managing our lands, but that we really shouldn't be putting indigenous communities or leaders on a pedestal. You could see how quickly the face of that international student fell, and I was shocked at that sort of, of a reaction. Putting indigenous communities on a pedestal. That's a new one, but that's something that I think we would anticipate. It's something, it's a type of reaction that is disappointing, but not shocking. It just made me think about how in the West, we don't think twice about pedestalizing billionaires or politicians or influential, with quotes, influential figures, celebrities, personalities, right? No one would question if you're reading a book from one of those idolised personalities or if you are strictly following what they preach. But now suddenly we're seeing an issue with being inspired by the ways of being as humans, which we all used to be. You know, which were more liberating, they were more natural, they were more integrated with nature. We're talking about indigenous communities who centre non-hierarchical, non-linear social structures, right, who haven't burnt the bridge between humanity and nature, rather preserved it. You know, they've preserved this ancestral wisdom that encourages them to be as close to their origins as possible, alongside protecting 80% of global biodiversity, despite only making up 5% of the world's human population. Indigenous communities, they are still living like the ways that we feel nostalgia for, but 
by we, I mean us living in urbanized, hyper-urbanized spaces. You know, they still live like this despite being within systems which seek to erase memories. So linking back to that memoricide I mentioned, or Yasmin mentioned in her talk, of this type of living. For example, they are constantly sidelined in global negotiations for environmental conservation and climate action, or people telling us that stop idolizing them, stop romanticizing the ways we used to live, the literal ways we used to live as humans, as part of our ecosystems, as part of the natural world. So what does that say about Western tendency to dominate and to be a power over all groups? and the way groups, communities function. What does that say about Western tendency to co-opt indigenous narratives and indigenous epistemologies? What does that say about the colonial project's ability to then reshape and rewire the modern human being to be more susceptible to controlling and mechanising, essentially being separate from the nature we are all from? Most importantly, what threat do indigenous ways of life hold up against Western systems of power, that such a response was seemed necessary in that learning space, but also in other communal spaces. Like, how does the idea or that fear of romanticizing the ways we used to live even pop up in the mind? What does that say about how fractured our human identities have become? And it's genuinely sad that we could even think this way. It's even sadder that we have moved so far away from that reality so that we have certain fears around that reality, you know, that that origin of humanity. And it's sad that only 5% of our global population is indigenous. But as I mentioned before, if nostalgia teaches us to sit with the pain, to hold it, it also teaches us to embrace the joys of recalling and reclaiming our pasts, you know, what makes us us and returning back home. And indigenous communities have done and continue to do the hard work for all of us. Their work with nature, within community, it really calls for a paradigm shift in essentially everything, but specifically modern human thinking, ways of thinking and the functionality of humanity as a system within the systems of or within the larger system of planet Earth. Thinking and the ways of being that centre love, reciprocity, respect and care, one that is guided by our ancestors, but one that is also not afraid to name the boons and pains of our pasts so that we always remain informed of how we are reshaping our world together. So you can see from my standpoint that nostalgia is so much more than just a deep longing for a past. It's therapy, it's an awakening, it's guidance and a reminder from our ancestors on what a human being used to look like and feel like and what it can feel like and look like in the present day. What the limits of the human body and mind are, and that will naturally guide us to respect the limits of our planet. But most importantly, nostalgia is a lens for a reimagined future, one that pushes us to disintegrate the cyberspace with our material realities, whilst still making use of technology and machines that work with us in this reshaping, not working over us. Because humans have always used tools and machines for efficiency. It has worked in the past and it can continue to work with us in the present and future too. But most importantly, nurturing relationships within and beyond the human world. Because without each other we are lost. Without each other we are uprooted. Uprooted from the systems of ourselves but also the systems of community and interrelationality. Thank you for listening to the Mindful of Everything podcast. I really, really do hope that you enjoyed today's Reflect episode on deep nostalgia. I do name this awakening and reimagining and rebuilding work as nostalgia because 
as I mentioned in the episode, it incorporates all my different worlds, but you can label it as anything else. Anything that helps you heal your human identity, which is so closely tied to the identities of all beings here. If you found that this episode resonated with you or previous episodes have, please support the podcast by giving a rating on whichever podcast platform you use. And do remember to share the podcast within your community to extend listenership to those who will also connect to the content. If you want to support the podcast further, become an official Mindful of Everything community member by buying me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash mindfulagreeter. Visit mindfuloveverything.com to access all other episode resources, previous episodes and ways to support.